0: January 12, 1865, the Charleston Mercury made its editorial comment upon plans in the Confederate Congress, then meeting in Richmond, to enlist slaves into the Confederate Army in exchange for their eventual emancipation. By the compact we made with Virginia and the other states of this Confederacy, South Carolina will stand to the bitter end of destruction. By that compact, she intends to stand or to fall. Neither Congress nor certain makeshift men in Virginia can force upon her their mad schemes of weakness and surrender. She stands upon her institutions, and there she will fall in their defense. We want no Confederate government without our institutions, and we will have none. We are free men, and we chose to fight for ourselves. We want no slaves to fight for us. Hack at the root of the Confederacy, our institutions, our civilization— and you kill the cause as dead as a boiled crab. Notwithstanding this pronouncement against the possibility of slaves fighting for an independent South, for decades, some have persisted in the belief that by 1865, slaves were already fighting for the Confederacy and had been fighting for it since the beginning of the Civil War. This continuing controversy over the myth of black confederates is not only an argument about the civil war or civil rights or the racial history of the United States, important as all those things are, is at its root also an argument about how to think historically, perhaps even how to read. With me to... Today, to discuss Black Confederates, is Kevin Levin, who for years has been at the center of this argument. Kevin is a teacher, a longtime blogger since 2005 at Civil War Memory, and his latest book is Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Kevin Levin, thank you for joining us on Historically Thinking.
1: Great to be here.
0: Uh, as I was um, thinking about this and reading your uh, advanced digital copy of your book, I realized that in many ways, uh, the whole issue of black Confederates got me interested in thinking historically. As I was telling you before we started recording sometime in 99, 2001, I had a student who insisted that blacks had served in the Confederate army and I was probably a medievalist at the time, but I was pretty certain that that was absolutely impossible because I knew about this argument. You know, you watch Ken Burns civil war, you know about the argument. Um, and he pulled out a sheaf of stuff off the internet uh, with the brand new World Wide Web, and it was, as I was thinking about this hard, it was editorials and accounts in northern newspapers, which for him, of blacks fighting, um, and which for him proved it. After all, these were northerners saying that it was the case. And I didn't know how to respond. I knew it couldn't be Accurate in the way he said it, but I didn't know how to respond um, And that probably got me thinking about historical thinking um, yeah. how, how did you, you've been blogging for since 2005 As we said, that's like the neolithic of, of, the, of the web And blogging, how did you get interested in this?
1: Yeah, it was shortly after I started blogging in 2005, I mean, with a blog called Civil War Memory. I mean, that sort of gives it away in terms of (laughs) uh, the kind of focus uh, or or subject that I'm interested in. I'm interested both in the history of the Civil War, but especially uh, questions about how uh, Americans have tried to come to terms over the years with uh, the Civil War and, and, and even Reconstruction. And it was shortly after I started that I came across a published uh, essay in a collection um, a book about slavery and public history by Bruce Levine who at the time was uh, working on his own book that eventually became Confederate emancipation which is a wonderful book but it, it sort of exposed me as well to the sort of the neo-confederate interest in uh, this black Confederate narrative uh, but also uh, the extent to which you know you mentioned of course the internet which is the the educators uh, in 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 some cases, it is a godsend and it is a worst nightmare for us because, of course, our students are going uh, to the Internet. But it also sort of uh, focused me on the importance of beginning to think about how the Internet, access to the Internet, the ability to post uh, or publish anything you want on the Internet, how that is going to impact how our students uh, access and assess information online. And the Black Confederate narrative is really uh, just the perfect case study to begin to look at uh, the the possibilities of research on topics like this, uh, and also the pitfalls, the dangers.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how did people start talking about black? Because your your first book was on the crater, uh, yeah, at Petersburg, at which, Petersburg, yeah, which was, um, and you got into Reconstruction from that because the Confederate general who defeated the crater was Billy Mahone, who becomes leader of the Readjuster Movement in Virginia. We we don't have time to get into that fascinating, really fascinating Virginia political era. But on the other side were some of the most uh, heroic African-American soldiers of the Civil War in the Union Army who had a doomed assault upon the the lines. So you were thinking about black soldiers right from the beginning.
1: Yeah. And all of a sudden-
0: All of a sudden, people were probably saying to you, hey, boy, well, you know, there were blacks on the other side, too. Is no, that that what...
1: that's a great way to sort of frame this, because in in a sense, the black, what I've learned in the course of my research over the years is that the black Confederate narrative is, you know, is generated um, in direct response to the increased focus Uh, on Black Union soldiers that really does begin to kick into high gear, sort of post-civil rights movement, right? You have more academic uh, interest in this subject, slavery, emancipation, the service of United States colored troops. uh, Public, I should say, historical sites around the country beginning in the 1970s, are beginning to address these issues, and within broader popular culture. So, of course, what I reference in the book is just the the importance of the television miniseries Roots, Uh which uh, airs in, what, 1977. And you begin to see Confederate heritage groups uh, respond to the fact that their preferred narrative, right, a lost cause narrative, glorious cause, the Confederacy, their brave generals, slavery, of course, being not the um, not the issue they fought over. Their slaves were loyal. They begin to sort of look for their own brave black Confederate soldiers. And so, in a sense, the, the those two books, these two books sort of uh, work well to one with one another, because the one narrative that begins to sort of um, gain more attention in the 70s generates the counter narrative, this mythical narrative about black Confederate soldiers as a way to balance out, um, to balance out the the I guess the moral scales, if you want. Yeah, the... I think
0: I think that's right, and also I, I, I think I'm continually as someone who knows a lot about the South before 1865. Yeah, I'm always intrigued by the not the New South even, but the New New South,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I, as we'll see, some of the people who uh, act as if there were Black Confederates are not the sort of people that you might think. They include like former NAACP local presidents and an eminent professor of African-American studies. Um, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, at least in the South that I see around me, uh, there are lots of people. These aren't people. I have to explain this to Yankees um, like myself. Um, they, they don't have a KKK robe peeking out of their backpack. Um, they're wearing polo shirts and they live in a very integrated South, in some ways more integrated than the North is. Uh, so, socially, often, mm. um, and yet they there's a certain way in which they're so far from the white supremacy even of the 1960s that would not tolerate the idea that blacks are able to fight. I think they can't quite bring themselves to the mindset of their grandparents. It's very strange. I'm talking about Southerners in particular now.
1: Yeah, you know, go
0: ahead. you know, so uh, uh, their grandparents would have found that that would make them vomit. That the, oh, the idea right. that blacks would be able to fight for the Confederacy—that they had that agency—that's
1: that, that, right. The, the generation that lived through the war, that that of course lived through the the, the immediate postwar period, or even decades into the decades into period, Jim. Crow, I would say even the generation yeah, that was 20th and, century. the veterans themselves are very consistent. Um, you know, in terms of how they remembered the presence of. African Americans in the army, they they, and in the broader Confederacy, they remembered them as enslaved people, either impressed, you know, to work on uh, various military projects, earthworks, rail lines, et cetera, um, or within the army itself. Right? There were there were thousands of, of of impressed slaves, and what I call. Camp slaves or body servants, as they were uh, commonly referred to during the war, um, so he, so white Southerners throughout you know, the early 20th century, uh, they are they, they they understand the presence of black men as part of the lost cause narrative. These were these were brave black, these were brave slaves. Yes, loyal. Slaves, what right?
0: I'm I'm trying. What I was trying to. I think I'm trying to get at is is that there are completely different presuppositions that a modern son of the army of Northern Virginia brings as opposed to their great grandfather. Uh, The the modern son of Northern Virginia really has a hard time imagining an African-American as not having agency. The great, the great grandfather's entire idea of what it means to be white depends on blacks not having agency.
1: And and understanding their place in a society built on white supremacy. Exactly. Right. Just yes. to sort of so flesh that out. Let's. Yeah.
0: So we look at this picture on the uh, across the the title sheets of the book. Is on the cover of yeah. the book the famous yeah. Andrew and Silas Chandler. Exactly. Yeah. Report. do you have it? Do you have that on your wall?
1: <laughs> you do. <laughs> no, I don't have it on the wall. I just sort of show a copy. Oh, right? they have the a <laughs> copy.
0: Right. And well, let's describe that. Uh, this is the, the problem of, uh, of a, a podcast. We've got uh, two men. Yep. Yep. We've got two men. Both are in Confederate gray. Uh, one is white and one is black. Mm-hmm. They both have ridiculously sized bowie knives, which I, I think at least in one case are cut down sabers.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, the white guy has two Revolvers, one shoved in his belt, holding the other. The black man has a rifle across both their knees. In fact, I think that's a that might be, even be a famous Mississippi rifle from like the eighteen from eighteen forty eight. And they're both staring confidently, uh, or at least stiffly, smilingly. Well, what the, the one of them is more smiling than the other into the camera. So, who are they? <laughs> And what
1: it it is, uh, you know, it is one of the iconic photographs of the entire Civil War. It was likely taken in 1861, shortly after Andrew Chandler uh, on the left Mm -hmm. uh, enlists in the 44th Mississippi Infantry from West Point, Mississippi. And he came from a slave owning family. And like a lot of other uh, soldiers, mainly officers, he starts out as a private uh, he brought with him a personal body servant, or what I again what I call a camp slave, Silas Chandler, who had been with the family since birth. In fact, he had moved with the Chandler family from Virginia um, to Mississippi uh, very early on in his life, as many Virginians did, take advantage of a growing cotton boom in the um, in what was then the the, the West uh, or the frontier. And Silas went off with him, uh, you know, to war. Um, the photograph is interesting. There is some debate about it. Uh, you know, again, it was obviously taken in a the studio. There are questions about whether or not the weapons are, uh, studio props. There's also the possibility that his uniform is a studio prop, although uh, there are plenty of photographs of camp slaves in uniform, and we can talk about why a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Silas was with Andrew through 1863 until Andrew's wounding at Chickamauga, Uh, There are stories of Silas escorting him back home. I have no reason to believe that he didn't because about a year later, Silas went off to war again with Andrew's brother, Benjamin, in a Mm -hmm. cavalry unit, and he remained uh, in the army with with Benjamin until the very end. In fact, uh, Benjamin's unit escorted was one of the units responsible for escorting Davis out of Richmond um, as he was trying to escape south? So, uh, so Silas was literally with uh, the army from the beginning until the end.
0: The, ver- the uh, very,
1: the very end of the, the war. The very end, uh, which is of course important to remember because a photograph, I think, is misleading in so many ways. Obviously, um, the uniforms, I think, for many people is the is sufficient evidence to, uh, obviously, to refer to him as a soldier. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, again. He clearly was not, uh, but also the fact that you know Silas had a kind of instrumental value. That when he was a, no longer any use to Andrew, he served um, you know his his brother uh, in the same capacity. Uh, he was he was married. Uh, he had a, Silas had at least he had one child, um, and you know so one of the problems we have as historians is you know it's very difficult. Uh, to really flesh out these stories from the perspective of these enslaved people, because in terms of the documentary evidence, it's just not it's just not there. And so we end up relying um, you know, almost entirely on what their owners, other you know observers have to say about them, both during the war and after the war. But Silas did. He was fairly successful after the war. Uh, he was a carpenter. Uh, he helped uh, build many of the more prominent buildings in West Point uh, after the war. His children uh, were quite successful, and mm-hmm. he lived to a fairly old age. He applied for a, a pension as a former camp slave, um, and uh, you know his descendants are still very active in um, in defending his his memory. Huh. They're at the sort of the front lines of this. Do they? This uh, do,
0: and they don't regard him as having been a soldier.
1: So that's quite a, it's an interesting question, because for quite some time, um, there was a split within the family. Hmm. Uh, one member of the family contacted me about 10 years ago, and we've maintained a very close relationship. In fact, we co-authored an article for a Civil War magazine back in 2012 about Silas, and she has shared a great deal of information with me about uh, about Silas um, that she had uncovered in both uh, local and state archives in Mississippi so uh i was one of the nice things about publishing this book was finally having the opportunity to send her a personal Mm -hmm. personally signed uh, copy but after um there was a pbs show history detectives that did an episode on andrew and silas and one of the guests was one of the members of the black chandler family there was the one on the white side and one on the african-american side and he had bought into this Mm -hmm. lost cause narrative and by the end of the episode, he understood that this was basically a false narrative. And, and the family has reunited.
0: So we look at the picture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is something right out of my first or second week of class uh, looking at pictures. Um, and there are three pieces of evidence in just sort of the normal person's mind to indicate that there were black Confederate soldiers. There's yeah. the uniform. That the fact that they're carrying guns, certainly a slave wouldn't be allowed to carry a gun. Uh, Third, why would anyone take, why would a sergeant take a servant to war? I mean, that's obviously crazy. That doesn't happen today. It didn't, therefore it didn't happen then. Right. Um, So I've shown this picture and point out also that in 1745, when the Black Watch was originally founded, the 42nd Highland Regiment, every single soldier had the option to bring a servant with them. (laughs) <laughs> so, Which is a com- a completely so foreign to us uh, right. that, that, that a private would be able to bring, or that you would need one. And then I have to explain, yeah. then we have to get into, and we might as well get into that now, what um, even in the American Revolution, you have a great many camp followers. And people immediately think, oh, they're all prostitutes. But they're not. Right. Um, they're the logistic tail. Of a, of a pre-20th century army. So we should talk about that a little bit because it, this does explain some of it.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, a couple of points you've made here. First, going back to the one final point about the photograph. Yeah. I, I've looked at that so many times. I, I I sort of chuckle at this point when I look at it because, you know, I, what I see is a very young Andrew Chandler. If I m- remember correctly, he's about 18 years old. Silas is about seven years older. Looks at... I, I see Andrew as sort of this young, bright-eyed kid. He's, you know, if the photograph was taken, uh, as he's going off to war, he has all of these sort of images of what war will be like. He's Mm -hmm. imagining his bravery on the battlefield. I see him walking into this studio, just basically packing in as many weapons as possible, just to drive home whatever sort of in his own mind, he is trying to to manifest through the photograph, along with Silas. Um, so, you know, that's that's that. That's the yeah, photograph. Yeah. yeah. I think you make a really important point about sort of the logistical end of you know of, of specifically Confederate armies, um, you know, during the Civil War, because these armies cannot function uh, without the presence of thousands of enslaved people, both as personal body servants, but also as impressed slaves, functioning as hospital attendants, uh, you know, helping with the foraging of food, maintaining a supply line, functioning as teamsters, driving wagons. Uh, Lee's army may have numbered as it's moving toward uh, Gettysburg in the summer of 63, may have numbered as many as 10,000 enslaved people. Uh, And I think that's that's a point that is often sort of overlooked, I think is absolutely crucial because there is this tendency today to try to distinguish between the importance of slavery to the Confederacy, but let's talk about, but that still leaves room to talk about the bravery of the Confederate soldier without having to deal with his connection to the institution of slavery. Some people will say, well, most Confederate soldiers didn't own slaves, right? So what kind of connection do they have in, or interest did they have in maintaining it? If you acknowledge that Confederate soldiers would have been confronted by enslaved people every day, in camp, on the march, even on the battlefield before and after, and perhaps even during at times, I think you can begin to see that there was no distinction for the for these men. They understood every day the vital importance of maintaining slavery and slave labor in the Confederacy, in, in the army itself. There mm-hmm. is no Confederate independence through military action without enslaved people. I was really the First two chapters of the book, just trying to situate these men within the military culture itself, not just master slave, mm-hmm. but within the broader army itself. No,
0: you, and you do a very nice job of that because uh, in, on the meta thing, on the the larger confederacy wide yeah. perspective, as Gary Gallagher has pointed out, uh, the. Service of white Confederates as a, as a proportion of the population is immense. And, you know, I was yeah. just talking the other day with a, a guest who was talking about the Roman, the army of the Roman Republic. Um, <laughs> slavery helps all classical societies. Actually, let me cancel that. Slavery has helped all societies up until 1865 uh, mobilize enormous armies, unfree uh, yeah. labor. Um, to be right. able to mobilize a a free population, Athens benefits from this to, because it's got a lot of free people. But it's got a lot of slaves. We can put those free people to rowing uh, their their galleys. Um, so this is a continual thing of military history that people often overlook. On a, but on a mic on a on a camp level, as you're pointing out, everyone every army is in some level a microcosm of its society. That's right, and that's absolutely. Right. The South is a slave society. The Confederate Army on the march, even in Pennsylvania, is a slave society.
1: That's right. They they are, they are doing the bidding. They are they are carrying out the official policy of the Confederacy, um, which you know is clearly stated from the very beginning, and it's enslaved labor itself that is helping to sort of make that possible. It's it's so what gets them close to victory on on numerous occasions
0: so what's the life of a camp slave you've um you've described some of their tasks one of the things people it's like describing the rest of american slavery um it's complicated <laughs> um it is. and uh, there is deep emotional intimacy combined with yep. cruelty and punishment Yep, and that's right Uh, It's uh, enslaved labor in which your labor is someone else's Yet at the same time, there's a possibility of making money So it's not always someone else's labor It's a very, it's the contradictions of, of course, uh, also don't enable I think that the the complexity of it is also, uh, has enabled the black confederate myth
1: That's Uh, right There's enough room in that uh, to sort of to, to, to get you there, and and I I hope I was pretty careful in you were. keeping the discussion within the the confines or the framework of the master slave dynamic. Um, it, it difficult to sort of you know get at daily routine, but your uh, camp slaves day uh, would have begun you know uh, the crack of dawn, preparing food, um, you know getting the camp ready to be uh, moved if they're on the march. Uh, taking care of dispatches for officers, uh, maintaining a connection between the home front and the camp for the officer, um, and uh, you know, carrying—I think I mentioned—carrying things on long marches, anything, foraging, cleaning, uh, you name it, right? Uh, but also, as you you know, rightly pointed out, you know, it is a long day, and there is free time to take advantage of, and. Uh, camp slaves did, did, did take advantage of that. Uh, they work for other, um, other Confederates. They earn money. And what I found so interesting about that is it allows you to begin to think about, I think we're so used to thinking of the master-slave relationship in the context of the plantation, where the white family, the master, is able to clearly establish the confines of that mm-hmm. relationship, right, through force, privilege, etc. cetera. Um, take that relationship now. And for both sides, place it now into an unknown world. You know, most Confederates have never been, they've never been to war before. Certainly slaves have not been to war before. What is that relationship going to look like? And how is the uncertainty of war going to stretch that relationship? And how will both sides push one another to begin to reestablish some kind of well, you know, some kind of agreement, if you will, it doesn't always work no. uh, it doesn't always work, and you know it doesn't always work, and you see this most clearly with slaves running away. You see this with uh, enslaved people uh you know buying uniforms with uh, with their money, pushing their uh, the extent of their freedom or privilege, and their owners having to push back and sometimes with vicious cruelty right. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I document, um, you know, in the book. And so it is a tenuous relationship um, at best. And um, at the same time, I do think, and this is a risk I took in, get, in trying to dig into this, there is a risk in trying to understand the extent to which master and slave had established a certain kind of intimate relationship. You can't deny that, that they share some of the hardships of war, disease, lack of food, weather, uh, and there are plenty of counts and granted, there are accounts from from slave owners of, um, you know, of taking care of one another. Mm. And I, I think you have to acknowledge that as best you can, but you have to do so within the slave master dichotomy, mm-hmm. right? That, it, within that relationship. Yeah. Um, it's the only way it makes sense. And it's the only way it's fair to the, the history and the memory of both sides.
0: Being found on the battlefield. Was another example. That's right. Yeah, I mean that, which is, you know, now some weren't found on the battlefield. That uh, that someone had taken right. the opportunity during Gaysburg to leave, and seek freedom on the other side of Cemetery Ridge, but you know, yeah. o-
1: o- and, others did. And, and why does Silas, you know, uh, rescue Andrew at Chickamauga and escort him back home? Well, for many, you know, people today, it's because he was loyal to Andrew in the Confederacy. Well. He's got a wife and child back home. Uh-huh. There's also the uncertainty of well, where are you going to go? I mean, uh-huh. I think some of the most interesting research, you know, to come down the pike in recent years is the the treatment of fugitive slaves, contraband slaves at the hand of the Union Army. I mean, we have wonderful new studies of contraband camps. So the other the other side is not, you know, is is not the the Disneyland ending right it's not you no. this we need to move beyond sort of this sort of slavery to freedom narrative we need to we need to complicate that and it's quite messy and so i think uh motivation is obviously a, a big problem for people uh when it comes to the black confederate story because i think people will just want to reduce uh any sign of loyalty to loyalty that can mm-hmm. be the only explanation mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and uh, it's much more complicated. and
0: there are many types of loyalty that operate simultaneously yeah. That's even absolutely. even just thinking of loyalty alone, leaving out coercion and punishment and all the rest of that thing, even okay, loyalty exactly. is tremendously complex. Um, one thing I was thinking as you're talking is, is, is the way, and you discuss this in the book, is the way that there are tens of thousands of these of these men. And they're all mostly, I guess, they're all men. There, have you found women's uh,
1: camp slaves? It's interesting. No, um, no, no written accounts, but I have seen some um, some visual. Um, um, materials uh, sort of post-war women cooking in camp and cleaning, and I assume that's the case. Yeah, I, I and mean, I
0: I the revolution, of course, that. that would have been absolutely common. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. of course, the roles of gender have changed in those hundred and eighty years, even about who follows the army, which is it was which is interesting. Um, but a lot of these guys, white and black, have only gone as far as the county seat in Alabama. Uh, they're living basically a peasant existence of going twelve to twenty miles uh, most of their life is, is as far as they would go. Now they're hundreds of miles away, so they've they've broken the spatial limitations that slavery imposes and the agricultural yeah. system imposes on pe- people. You you described how they take they connect white officers to home. White officers are sending black slaves back home and expecting sure. them to return. Okay, they've got passes, but that still violates all the conventions of the antebellum slave system. Um, it's its the very, the fact, the war is already has pushing slavery into different directions. Um, it's bursting the bond, the previous bonds of slavery or bounds of yeah. slavery.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, uh, and I, 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 there are, there are certain places in the book where I, I think, um, we we do need more research, and I think this one sort of very narrow question that you're raising, or issue of of um, of couriers, you know, moving back and forth between the home front, um, you know, and 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 camp is an interesting one. I suspect that most of these cases are cases if you're talking about the Army of Northern Virginia, where we're talking about Virginians, maybe North Carolinians, right, mm-hmm. where armies are relatively close to to the home front, right. I, I don't think we're talking too many. We'll find too many cases of Texans, say, in the army of Northern Virginia yeah. as they're marked. Right, uh, it's a minor point. Um, obviously, on the other side of the the coin here, you know, those enslaved people who do, you know, make the decision to run away. I mean, to me, those are some of the most fascinating stories. And I found a number of accounts of Confederate officers who they struggle for days, weeks on end, trying to figure out why did their their loyal camp slave, right. Um, Choose, leave them. Actually, I, I not say choose because they they're never able to sort of acknowledge in the end no. that um, that they would choose to do anything like that, right? I mean, they must have been kidnapped, influenced in some other way, uh, but they would never choose to leave on their own to escape on their own because, of course, that would or undercut the very notion of a kind of a paternalistic uh, mentality that the that the slave owner. Yes, embraced going back through the antebellum period, um, but but it's again that's that's a wonderful example or wonderful examples of the stretching of that master slave relationship yeah. to the breaking point. It was very and how, interesting. And how well deals with it or fails.
0: Very yeah. interesting to read those. I guess the only accounts I've read of that are say from Mary Chestnut or Gertrude Thomas, you know, set in April uh, of May of eighteen sixty-five, as people who they thought were blood loyal to them. Uh, yeah. Are leaving, and the yeah. psychological betrayal is immense. I mean, it's usually converted to rage against the union, against yeah. the north, um, because yeah. they can't, as you say, they cannot deal with this idea that it's all been a sham.
1: That's right. It's fault of those those damn Yankees coming down here and destroying our civilization, right? right.
0: Or luring them away, or telling them yeah. things, you know, whatever. But exactly. Exactly. the idea that that well, the idea. <laughs> Whatever Robert Barnwell Rhett said in this editorial—that basically our institution, the fact that our institutions and our civilizations were built upon sand—cannot um, be tolerated.
1: They're very clear about all of this, which is, you know, something I still find, you know, bizarre that you have to explain to people <laughs> these days who are, for whatever reason, taken by this. Yeah, this well, let's talk, f- let's
0: talk. Let's <laughs> talk about that. What's the thing about the, the the Southern honor? Does not allow for the idea. That a black slave could fight for it, uh, why is that why is that true? I mean, let's explain that in words of two syllables. yeah,
1: I, I, I think look the the, it, the the battlefield is uh is the landscape where brave white soldiers demonstrate their southern honor, right? They, they, they're, it, it's the uh, the form in which they demonstrate their bravery, uh, their willingness to defend their families, their homes, their communities. It is um, it is the chance to to sort of act out wh- what they were raised to do, right? To to be sort of the head of that, um, to be the sort of paternal head of the family of the community, right? Mm-hmm, to take mm-hmm. the lead. Uh, enslaved people, of course, um, are, are are just simply incapable of uh, exhibiting that kind of behavior, um, both intellectually, both morally, uh, character-wise, right? And so they struggle. You know these these slave owners struggle quite often when they actually see these enslaved people entering the battlefield and sometimes picking up a rifle and shooting at Yankees and displaying um, what appears to be some kind of bravery. Right. And they, in their letters and diaries, they 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 have trouble with this. And one way I found that they deal with it is that they. Um, when they actually see them flee, um, you know, from the battlefield, they emphasize this, mm-hmm. this, this is confirmation that in fact, forgetting of course, that plenty of white soldiers are, uh, you know, desert, the battlefield desert, the, the army entirely at different points in the war. Um, you know, th- this confirms, uh, their, their antebellum assumptions about, yeah. about the racial hierarchy and, right. and the kind of behavior that you expect, um, you know, between white and black. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And of
0: course, without understanding that context, reading sources like those northern newspaper articles I refer yeah. to is impossible.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, so, that,
0: that, that, that's right. We, uh, so uh, where did those northern newspaper sources come from that my student gave to me, uh, shoved in front of me years ago? Um, and what, what were they, because this has created a lot of problems.
1: It has. And, you know, and this gets us back to sort of where we started in, in, in terms of um, in terms of just the importance of the Internet and just the, the availability of of um, of primary sources um, on the Internet. And, I, you know, as an educator, as a historian, I'm all for this. Right. I assume <laughs> you are as well. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. well, I mean, look, we now we're at a point in time where You know we we can allow our students our students have the opportunity to do original research right of course the challenge is that or the problem is that we're not teaching them again how to how to think about the internet uh, as sourcing how to assess and and search and so you 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 go to Google you do a keyword search and you might come across a photograph you might come across uh, a northern newspaper account um, and it may not have any kind of context or explanation, or it may be couched in that sort of uh, you know lost cause narrative. But getting to sort of those specific accounts, many of them, um, many of them come from the period roughly between you know April and July of 1862, as the two armies, as McClellan's large army, is moving up the peninsula uh, to take Richmond. And like I said, the, the armies are in close proximity. And, you know, so Union soldiers and observer, uh, observers are seeing these hundreds of, of camp slaves moving around. Thousands, um, probably thousands. Thousands, yeah, thousands, absolutely. They're building and, and,
0: enormous and fortifications up and down that, the peninsula. That, that,
1: absolutely, yeah. absolutely right. And they are certainly picking up rifles uh, at different times um, when, you know, uh, you know, as the armies, um, you know, approach one another. And these accounts, you know, appear in northern newspapers. Uh, some of them are are pushed for political reasons. Frederick Douglass is a great example of this. I, had no, Douglass,
0: I had no idea that was that completely new to me that Frederick Douglass. We have Frederick Douglass to blame for black confederates, and
1: and, and the, and the neo confederates today love to <laughs> Frederick Douglass. I mean, what better evidence you know do you need? But of course, remember the context. Douglas has been pushing Lincoln to recruit United States color troops. Um, or, or, you know, uh, free blacks in the North into the Union Army from day one. And Lincoln, of course, for, you know, the reasons we, we know, uh, refuses. And so I think part of this is if you can convince Republicans, Lincoln, uh, the administration in Washington, that Confederates are taking advantage of this manpower, uh, that's a problem militarily for the United States. And so you have a choice now. You can begin to sort of expand on the contraband acts, right, that have already been passed um, and utilize them as soldiers, or you can give them over and allow the Confederacy to continue to to use them. The point I think is that's often lost here is I really think it's important to understand that neither the Confederacy or the United States was willing to arm slaves in 1861. Both of them for both sides, this was going to be a white man's war, and for various reasons, both sides begin to move and evolve uh, in different directions. The United States takes advantage of this by 1863, as we all know, and the Confederacy, of course, uh, you know, at the very end, before it's uh, you know really after it's going to matter at all, uh, it's way too late. By March of 1865, begin to recruit a small number of slaves as soldiers. So. Um, Look, newspapers are reporting all kinds of things, as they do today. Some of them are reports that are firsthand. Some of them, most of them, I suspect, are not. Yeah. Uh, people are sharing what, what they're hearing. And, you know, if you're just going to take a newspaper account, I mean, with all the talk about fake news today, right? Yeah. I mean, you'd think you'd go back into the past and and maybe sort of, no, you know— Uh, Engage in that material with the same kind of suspicion, but uh, yeah.
0: And if you think this is bad, you should try. You should try 17th century newspapers.
1: Uh, Yeah, because it's even worse. nothing uh, changed no right no it doesn't i I, I was uh, a good point about historical thinking right yeah. and and, and that I think is really again as educators you know we we can really appreciate this that it really does drive home the importance of of being able to that history is not just simply uh, you know a set of events strung together that that what we're doing is trying to to understand um you, you know a wide range of of primary sources, you know, uh, to structure a narrative. And, yeah. and that takes time, takes, takes patience.
0: Time. And it's, yeah. uh, also to avoid the belief that history is the search for the one unimpeachable source.
1: Uh, that will confirm yeah. your pre assumptions, right? Your, yes. your, your,
0: your, yeah. That there's someone saw everything and recorded it perfectly. I think I was looking for that for several years as an undergraduate um, I thought that was okay. what historians did find the best yeah. possible source. Actually, it's much more interesting. We're just we're dealing with a jigsaw puzzle. And uh, yeah. we don't know if, if it's all. all... <laughs> yes. And, and the problem is, is not there's no picture on the cover of the box. And, and it's a couple different jigsaws mixed together. So that's, yeah. you know, that's what, that's the, that's the course of the work. I was also, I mean, that's a charming, it's charming. Uh, that's not the word for it, but it reveals, of course, Frederick Douglass as the absolutely, not only a great statesman, not only a great intellectual, but as an absolutely unscrupulous politician. Yeah. Uh, and it remind then I went later, thought, okay, this is what Booker T. Washington is doing in a different way when he's, he's telling uh, Southerners, white Southerners, what they want to hear about camp slaves. Uh, that's right. We, we often think, Oh, Booker T. must have believed that. That shows he's not as cool as W.E.B. Du Bois. No, he's just as unscrupulous a politician as yeah. Frederick Douglass was.
1: You know, He's trying to create that space where, you know, um, to a picture of race relations that will complement or further his goals as yes. an educator yes. in places like the Institute elsewhere. And you find African-Americans throughout that period, especially former camp slaves, I Camp slaves engaged in the same kind of sure. project, if you will, and
0: then right? Douglas is and Douglas at that time is doing what he can to further his larger political goal. Um, so the, we we refer we we know about as we referred to it, the Confederacy comes to this basically as the grave is almost dug for it, um, and it's really is kind of interesting. I mean, eighteen at the beginning of eighteen sixty four, Patrick Claiborne commanded is commanding a division in the Army of Tennessee. And he writes a paper, literally, at the beginning of 1864. It's January 2nd, right? Yeah. Uh, Advocating the um, Blacks' slaves serving in the army in exchange for their emancipation. That's right. And it's suppressed. Uh, Joseph Johnson suppresses that. It gets someone else tattletales to Jefferson Davis. He blows his top. And yet, by November the situation is such that he's forced to confront it. He needs more, needs, needs more armies.
1: It's, it's a manpower issue in the end. I think Davis by November of 64, you know, he had resisted this at different stages. There were calls, even in 1861, Richard Stoddard Yule, Confederate general actually broached the issue in 61. Wow. Uh, But it really doesn't pick up steam. And as you said, until, you know, uh, Claiborne in, in 64, uh, but Claiborne, of course, is part of a broader, growing uh, call for slave enlistment, and I, you know, I, I, like I said, I think Davis uh, resists as long as he can um, for a number of reasons. But, um, but, but again, I think the writing's on the wall. But, but that is a very, uh, a very divisive, but also a very public uh, debate throughout the Confederacy, both on the home front in Richmond and the Confederate Congress, and especially in the army itself, over what what is the Confederacy? What exactly are we fighting for? And I think the quote that you started with from the Charleston Mercury, you know, bears this out as, as clearly as, uh, as as you could want. Um, they, I think a couple of things I'll say about this, regardless of what position you take on enlistment, few people see this as a general emancipation plan. And that's often misunderstood. In other words, I think some people, many people, uh, believe that they can engage in a kind of limited emancipation for the people who of course are willing to fight perhaps their families uh, but this is not an attempt or this is not part of a general plan of abolition um, the other important thing I would just throw out there and again this gets to the to the current uh, misunderstanding um, you know people who of course claim that there were hundreds if not you know thousands of, of black men fighting throughout the war for the confederacy. In 10 years of of reading and researching, I have yet to find a single account from anyone in the Army, again, on the home front, in the Confederate Congress, again, regardless of their position on the issue, who says, by the way, they are already serving in the Army. Right. So whatever stories you've come across um, you know, from 1863 of a black man holding a rifle and firing it at, at Union soldiers, and there are hundreds, thousands of them, and I believe they're true. No one considers what they are doing as functioning as a soldier in the army. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they understood that the turn that they were about to take was a, a decisive turn that, that could potentially undercut everything they believed in uh, from day one and also um, perhaps bring to fruition some of their worst fears. Mm-hmm. About ending slavery that, of course, um, you know, go back through the antebellum period, you know, beginning with um, slave rebellions. Right. The idea of arming large oh. numbers of slaves, uh, we've completely lost any we've lost any appreciation of what that meant to a generation that comes out of um, either lived through Nat Turner's rebellion or learned about oh. it.
0: Yeah. Um, or even the, or even or right? even knew about the Haitian rebellion. Let's see, even take it from the 1790s. The, se- the 1790s on, the only thing worse than a slave that can read is a slave with a gun.
1: That's right. And and look, I, I just I don't want to plug my first book on the Crater, but I think there is some relevancy here in that once emancipation becomes a reality in 1863, and you do see black men fighting for the United States, and especially by 1864, uh, fighting Confederates on, on real battlefields, you learn a lot by, by sort of... Um, by acknowledging how Confederates treat black soldiers. At the crater, of course, uh, upwards of 200 are massacred, uh-huh. both during and after the battle. And when you read their accounts, and, this, and these accounts are coming from slaveholders and non slaveholders in the Confederate Army, um, they're very clear about why they massacre these men. These are slaves in rebellion. Uh-huh. They're very clear about this. It's a
0: violation and of all societal norms that they've been raised in. Everything. Everything. And
1: and, 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 and unless you understand that, unless you really appreciate that those fears, um, this debate that takes place in 64 and 65 uh, makes absolutely no sense. Right,
0: right, right. I also I, – I, we should point out that the Confederates are very angry when they read the northern newspapers – of eighteen sixty-two, and they hear Frederick Douglass. They're, what I love is the insistence. No, that's absolutely that's that's hate. That's disgusting. Of course, we would never do
1: that. The worst thing you can say about what they are up to in this uh, in this experiment in Confederate independence, right?
0: Okay. Well, in the end, um, the Confederacy. Uh, spoiler alert: loses, and uh, we then uh, have proof. That the old cynical dictum that it's the uh, winner writes the history is not true, because in the case of the American Civil War, the loser wrote the history and did a really good job of it and persu- yeah. and persuaded everyone. That's what we call the lost cause, um, yeah. and it probably was Bruce Catton. Probably took Bruce Catton. I, I'll give him credit for starting to tear down the edifice of it. It took a a, Michi- a Michigander who who thought of his, his his grandparents or his, the old man that he knew as being heroic too. Yeah. Um, that's right. Uh, to start tearing down that edifice. Um, and it was an edifice built uh, in lots of places, including Columbia University. Let's not, let's not forget that. Um, but part of this lost cause was the place of camp slaves. And so briefly, um, we talked about Booker T. Washington. Um, why is it necessary for Confederate reunions to also have camp slaves there? And, That's a great question. And, yeah. and also, I mean, I, I also was struck... Uh, those pictures of guys with lots of medals, yeah, um, which have then yeah. been misinterpreted as well, yeah. um, we should explain both of those things.
1: Yeah, I, I like. I think first of all, I think some of these former camp slaves want to attend these reunions, and I think for a number of reasons, I, I think um, many of them, I have no doubt, have a fond memory of of the war. It was an adventure for them as well. Yep. Um, perhaps they learned something about themselves. Uh, during the war. And so I think they see these, and and I assume also they they perhaps want to rekindle perhaps a relationship with someone they knew, a Confederate soldier or officer, um, you know, during the war. But there is also, I think, the broader uh, sort of context of Jim Crow uh, that has to be understood here. And and as you mentioned, the lost cause, that the presence uh, of these former slaves, Uh, is a living confirmation of of the lost cause itself, that these men remained loyal during the war and they remained loyal to their former um, owners uh, after the war as well. And I think more broadly, as Jim Crow begins to uh, sort of congeal throughout the South, um, that these elderly men know their place in a society that is now experiencing um, a good deal of racial unrest. Right. A society whose white uh, power structure has to be maintained legally and also extra legally through things like lynching Mm -hmm. and to jump ahead a little bit. I mean, if you're thinking about the importance of World War One as as black servicemen come back from Europe, helping to make the world safe for democracy, they show up in their uniforms. Some of them are carrying the rifles um, and they are seen as a threat to this white uh, white supremacist to Jim Crow itself, uh, the Jim Crow hierarchy, or the racial status quo. And so these elderly men become symbolic. They, I think, function for not just the veterans, but for white Southerners generally at this point. Um, they function as, you know, these men knew their place, and they still know their place. Um, and, you know, they will be rewarded in in certain respects. And I think that sort of gets you to the, the pensions that a few of these men... Yeah, what what, what in is the it? the 19-
0: the pensions. Why pensions for former camp slaves? And what what does that start to?
1: Well, Mississippi, well, there are are calls in a number of states beginning in the 1870s. Mississippi is the first in 1878, but it's not until the the 1920s that it really, the other four or five states, former Confederate states, institute these policies. Um, One of the problems in researching is there isn't much in terms of a legislative record in in many of these uh, states to really follow the, the debate. Um certainly they are it's an attempt to offer something kind of aid to people who certainly desperately need it by the end of their lives. Yes. Um and I think if you if you read the applications themselves, the applications also provide another moment for um for state governments to, to sort of frame the war as a lost cause endeavor. In other words, you know, it's an opportunity for, uh, for former slaves to talk about their loyalty to their master, uh, rescuing, uh, you know, the master on the battlefield, serving Robert E. Lee, as many of them claim they did personally uh, during the war. And um, again, I think it helps to highlight that difference between here are your troublemakers on the one hand, the younger generation of African Americans who've never experienced the war, uh, and their. Parents and grandparents who knew their place. And I, I think it also functioned as a kind of, again, it had a, had a deep symbolic importance mm-hmm. um, for, for white Southerners during this time. Um, but it's unusual. And I, I have to point out, compared to the pensions that, you know, white, veteran, the Confederate soldiers were receiving, uh, the amounts pale in comparison. And because these are only instituted in the 1920s, very few are able. To take advantage of them,
0: and, not, uh, and none of them, we should point out, are none of them are registered as former soldiers.
1: No, in fact, uh, you know, I found plenty of examples. Though some of them do slip through the cracks. Uh, I mean, the pension system, like any bureaucracy, is bound to make mistakes, and, and it did. In fact, I found cases where uh, former camp slaves are successful in applying for pensions as soldiers, and then there's a review, and then they're denied but in many cases i found that right from the beginning um they get a letter back from the pension board saying you're you're not classed as a as a confederate soldier right huh yeah and um and and you know again that's just one of the things that um you know it's difficult to sort of it shouldn't be difficult to explain to people today because the documents themselves actually tell you what this is a, who the pension is for right yeah. north carolina had a used a soldiers pension for both, but the other states had their own pension documents and it, it says for former servants of soldiers. (laughs) So again, it's, um, you know, one of those things where if you just read the document, right. You know, they do once in a while, they do tell you what you need to know.
0: (laughs) You don't don't even need to understand the context for some documents. Yeah. Um, so in many ways, as you say, the, the, the story, the myth of black Confederates began in 1994, uh, which is like that poem by anyway. Um, so the myth of black and Ferrets began in 1994.
1: Uh, well, I, would, I would say you know really more late 1970s.
0: Okay, and how did that? How did it? How did it start to develop? Obviously, the, so, we talked about the web, and also I would say yeah. Photoshop did a lot to further that. No, no
1: that, that's right. The, the famous photo of the Louisiana Native Guard is is photoshopped in the early 1970s. Um, and then following roots, the, the, sons of Confederate veterans begin to, uh, this, this topic of black Confederates begins to pique their interest as a way to sort of defend their, their preferred narrative of the war. Uh, and really there, there isn't much to sort of, you know, um, to sink your teeth into in terms of what they produce, because of course, at this point there is no internet. They've got the, the SCV has Confederate veteran magazine. Uh, they have newsletters. They are, they, they publish a few books, about this issue, uh, but it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't spread beyond, you know, with that relatively small community of people who need to hear this narrative uh, as a way to sort of reinforce, again, their own assumptions about what their uh, great-great-grandparents were fighting for, and it certainly wasn't to preserve slavery. Um, but I think, yeah, you're, you're, you're right that, it again, as we started out, it, it really is the Internet that, that allows this to pick up steam. Because, again, you know, uh, a lot of these websites are simply cut and pasted from one another. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it's um, anyone can be his or her own historian on the Internet. Right. Uh, No no one knows you're not a historian on the Internet. That's right. And so I think for many people who simply, again, uh, aren't savvy enough to be able to judge uh, the veracity of a website, um, just acknowledging the sheer numbers of, of individual websites that include this information is for many people enough confirmation. That's all they need. And and as we mentioned earlier, you know, those photographs are very powerful. Silas and Andrew, others in uniform standing next to their masters. Um, You know, what could be, what more evidence do you need than that? Um, And so it is an inability, it it is a lack of uh, understanding of relevant historical context. And again, just historical thinking generally that's contributed to this, but not for everyone. As you, Alluded to, yeah. Some, I was some should know better, right? Some
0: people should. But I for one thing, I was kind of uh, shocked that a former president of the NAACP in Asheville, North Carolina, was in. Yeah, in, um, yeah. and then also Henry Louis Gates. I hadn't realized that his uh, that TV shows could drive you crazy, but apparently, the having to come up with something new all the time uh, does that. Could you briefly, as we close yeah. out, could you explain both of these the curious cases of? You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I don't, I certainly don't want to group them together. I think no, they, ought- no. they have, they've, have, they've, have, they've have their own different, uh, yeah. yeah. For, for HK Edgerton, um, you know, I've been following him for years, former chapter president of the NAACP in North Carolina. Um, you know, he's, he's complicated. I think on the one hand, there's a certain amount of opportunism behind what he does. He gets a lot of exposure. He sells his, his T-shirts through a company called Dixie Outfitters, so there's a monetary benefit here. But I also want to give him the benefit of the doubt because I think he, when you, li- if you listen to him enough, he does. He there is for him there is something attractive about a time in which, at least from his perspective, uh, race relations were not as fraught. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the history of the of the loyal slave, the black confederate as as disturbing as as we find it and of course from i think many other most people i i assume for him it's it's sort of it sort of confirms that um that there was a point in time um where where things were not as racially divisive um you know and i say that you know again i think he's complex um I thought about interviewing him, um, you know, but we've communicated in the past and I, I decided not to in the end. But I, I hope I've I've characterized him fairly in the book. I'll I'll leave it to others to decide. For for Henry Louis Gates, and, and I, I want to start out by saying I have a great I have a great respect for for Professor Gates. I I think you know his work in trying to bring some of this history Uh, You know, to the general public is admirable. I absolutely loved the recent Reconstruction documentary. I thought it was absolutely brilliant.
0: But I have to say, as someone who basically grew up in the 90s, reading him on African American history and his autobiography, I was kind of like horrified uh, when I read this. This is not. I I didn't, I haven't followed him for the last 10 years. Yeah, he
1: he first came across this narrative, I'll make a long story short, while filming a documentary in in North Carolina called Looking for Lincoln. And he came across a SCV ceremony honoring the daughter, supposedly, of a former camp slave. And as far as I can tell, that's where he first learned about this. And, you know, he has been pushing this in various ways Ever since, For him, as best I can sort of discern, the black confederate it, it is a, a way to sort of reinforce the point that African-Americans are complex, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that the history itself is complex. Um, he has gone after sort of, quote unquote, liberal historians who are, um, for whatever reason, incapable of acknowledging this complexity in African-American history. Um, I would love to hear more from him on that. Uh, but he has said some pretty outlandish things about, you know, entire companies being raised of these of these black soldiers. And, you know, he has that publication called The Root, which I, th- I believe he founded. Um, and in what 2000, I want to say a couple of years back, a colleague of his, John Stoffer, another Harvard professor, uh, published a piece and um, all kinds of outlandish claims uh, you know, for Stauffer. It was somewhere between three and six thousand slaves fought as soldiers. I mean, as I point out in the book, this would have been a revelation to Confederates in 1864-65, and he never explains how he arrives at this number. <laughs> much, of the, much of the evidence he includes is right out of the neo-Confederate canon, if you will. Yeah. So it, it, you know, it is strange. The, I, I have to the say that vague,
0: the vagueness of the number adds to its verisimilitude. I mean, if he had said like four thousand nine hundred, then that's too accurate. But three to six thousand, okay, (laughs) that's that's, that's as good as our. uh, It's anyway. Go on.
1: It is for me. In the end, it is just you know fascinating in terms of who gets sucked into the vortex of this black Confederate nonsense. Yeah, Um, fascinating. it It tells us, and I think for I think for me at least, it 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 tells me something really interesting about. How we engage with the past and and the ways in which we're trying to find meaning, yes, uh, in the past, I find that fascinating. And, and uh, the Black Confederate uh, story certainly is a, is a is an ideal case study in getting at some of that.
0: Could you could you expand on that a little bit more as we close up? I mean, that's I think very true. I think that I think in many ways, well, in most ninety eight percent of this has something to do with race relations since nineteen ninety. Um, It has something, as as I was suggesting earlier, has something to do with the new New South. It has something to do with a South, which as if I go to Charleston or Savannah, I see more biracial couples than I see in the North. I see more a black, a white couple and a black couple having dinner together than I would in New York City generally. I mean, I'm just saying that the South is very different than I thought it was when I was growing up in New Jersey. It's very, yeah. it's we know it's very different than it was in the 60s or even the 70s. Um, yeah. And I think that a lot of this uh, has a lot to do with that. Um, but, and.
1: Yeah, I, I actually think you just summed it up perfectly. I mean, I think we are always, you know, how we approach the past, how we consume it, produce it uh, is often a reflection of of our own needs, right? And so as yeah. you, I think, rightly pointed out, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, for most white Southerners, they needed to believe um, that their former camp slaves, slaves generally were loyal to um, to their masters, the Confederacy, and remained loyal for decades after the war. And I think, you know, in our current racial climate for some people, the Black Confederate narrative is, um, is sort of confirmation that perhaps the racial problems we're experiencing are manufactured. Mm. I find it fascinating that, at least online, the people who are the most vocal, uh, you know, black Confederate supporters are are Trumpists. They're mm. conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a way of it's a way of just pushing that whole issue aside, right? You're you're sort of manufacturing it. And I think for people like H. Carterton and others, um, you know, who have bought into this, especially descendants of former camp slaves. I think for some of them, it's an opportunity. Finally, you're acknowledging my ancestors.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: You're doing so, especially for people who get, who get caught up in the whole Sons of Confederate Veterans. The Sons of Confederate Veterans want to honor your ancestor as a brave soldier. Who wouldn't want that? Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't want to be invited to that ceremony to see your ancestor uh, honored with a military-style headstone? Right? I think that's incredibly powerful, and I think, you know, I think what we're finding is that um, there is no consensus on the past in 2019, and we're still sort of trying to – it is a jigsaw puzzle um, in, in many respects. As you, as you mentioned, um, in terms of whether – just in terms of how we remember our own narrative, um, it still does come down in the end to perhaps what we need to make sense of the world around us.
0: My guest today has been Kevin Levin. He is author, most recently, of Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's most persistent myth, available now from the University of North Carolina Press. Kevin, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking.